cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us, the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As always, very excited to be with you. Once again, spend, spend the next hour together. What a week we've had. Um, love so much going on in the country, in the world, and it just feels like never a dull day. Greg Nicholson, how are you holding up? Surviving, is that your line now? Just, just trying to make it through 2016 and I hope for better things I in think 2017. That's everyone. We actually should put together 2016 wasn't so bad show one of these days. I, I feel like we've, everyone's caught up in the narrative that 2016 was terrible. I feel like we need to counter that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm we sure can. some good things <laughs> happened this year. If we, just, if we just think about it. All right, that's us thinking about it. We'll get back to you if we come up with anything. Anyway, jumping into this week's show. Talking a bit about the strike on Robertson's Winery, that's the farm down in Cape Town, the popular brand that you all know, uh, Robertson's Wine, and shelves that you will see at sort of liquor stores everywhere. Um, and we had a 14-week strike of the farm workers there uh, campaigning and pushing for better working conditions, pushing for better pay and increased salaries. And we had a 14-week strike there that's, that's, that's just come to an end and just been settled. We want to dig into what's going on there. What were the specific demands? What are the specific relations on this farm? And also the wider narrative about just, just farmlands and winelands and, and the relations between owners and, and farm workers and, and what can be such an un, unequal relationship. Mm, and a what, huge story for yeah, workers' rights around the country. Absolutely. And, and, and what a lot of people are pointing to as sort of exploitative labor practice. Is it fair? Is it unfair? Talk a bit about that. Also, the shock election in Gambia. We covered this about two weeks ago, and everybody was pretty much indicating that the, the current president, Yahya Jame, would stay in power as long as he wanted. And, you know, he didn't. He's not. <laughs> so, lots of conversations about what on earth happened there. Um, someone who has been, you know, widely understood and described himself as a president for life, pretty much. And what happened there? A great story for democracy in Africa and really want to see and check that out. And then lastly, going over to America, the protest that some people are calling Standing Rock. That's the protest against the, um, the, the, the access pipeline that's being piped through what is described as sacred land by the Native Americans. There's been a big site of protest then and people camping there for weeks and weeks and weeks and saying, no, this is sacred land and this should be protected land. Um, and it's just not okay to do this and poisoning, uh, the, the, the water that's traditionally been the reserve of the, of the local communities there. So that's us for the next hour. Now to finally jump in. We'll be talking a bit about, as mentioned, Robertson's Winery. On the line, we should have uh, Deneko Dube uh, from the Commercial Stevedore Agricultural and Allied Workers Union. Deneko, can you hear us? Yes, sir. Can you? Can okay, you? wonderful. So, Deneko, we're just watching from up here, and we've heard about the 14-week strike happening at Robertson's Winery and the, and the, and the push for some of the uh, better pay, pushing for a 13th check. Um, and, and, and just really pushing and saying that the, given the labor they're putting in, that they deserve more than uh, as little as 2,900 rand a month that, that, that some of them are getting. So, Deneko, I'd love if before we even get to the Robertson's Winery, uh, uh, incident in particular, if you could just give us sort of the general context of, 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 of farm workers, especially in the wine, on the wineland areas. Well, what are, the, what are the general grievances and sort of labor issues that come to you as, as part of the union from these, from these workers? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity again. <clears throat> yeah, the general grievances that we received um, from workers, especially farm workers in these rural areas, are the living conditions and the working conditions of farm workers. And yeah, still up to today, it's still in the worst condition. And that is why Kasau is taking up the plea to fight 
And then could you give us just some specifics? I mean, you talk about things like you know, you say working conditions, living conditions. What's what's? Could you just give us some specific, some examples of some of the of, of some of the living conditions, the working conditions that come up? And perhaps can you let us know? Obviously, um, the the farm worker sector was rife with exploitation throughout um, apartheid and 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 even before. Has has anything changed since then, or are, are we still experiencing some of those extremely hum- inhumane living conditions and labour practices? Up a bit there, just for those who missed that. Um, the neck was speaking about the film Bitter Grapes that was aired, um, to, to, to basically sh- uh, shed light on the plight of, of a lot of farm workers, including what you've mentioned the lack of access to clean drinking water. Sorry, Greg, you had a question? Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking, um, Deneko, can you just elaborate a little bit for us on obviously we saw those huge strikes in 22, I think it was 2012, right? The or 2013, the Dodon's uh, strikes with the farm workers there. From some of the things we've read, it seems as if employers have actually now cracked, sort of united and cracked down on any, any sort of dissenting workers. Is that what you've experienced? Has the, has labor unity become more difficult in recent years? Yeah, yeah, that is the specific thing that I want to refer to you. You see, after the farm worker uprising in 2012 and 13, um, I was actively participating in that strike because I was at that time also a farm worker and a farm worker substitute representative of my community. So immediately after the strike, um, I think it was about six months after the strike, there was a plot against me to get rid of me from the farm that I've worked on, and they managed to get rid of me. And you know why? Uh, the the case against me was that I was absent for half a day, and they dismissed me for that. So that is only one example. The other example is immediately after the, after the farm worker uprising in 2012 and 2013, well, what farmers did is that they have got rid of all the substitute leaders on the farms, most of them, was dismissed and most of them was evicted to ensure that there is not unity amongst workers in the workplace. So that is what basically is continuing doing. So then 
that's I guess set the stage for this um, this striker Robertson. Coming into this strike, was the union involved beforehand, or did you get involved afterwards? Yeah, the worker joined the union six months. I think it was in June, July this year, and we immediately take up the workers' grievances. So workers have compiled uh, twenty-three demands to. Mm-hmm. And we have started to negotiate these demands. One of the demands was that uh, they want a living wage of 8,500 rand across the board and 10,000 rand for the operators in the company. So workers have immediately said to us that there is huge inequality between black workers and white uh, white workers in the company. One example is you'll find that uh, uh, if a white worker is coming yesterday in the company, is going to be a mechanic, and you find a black mechanic is working 13, 14 years in the company. The black mechanic is earning 8,000 rand, and the white mechanic is earning 18 to 19,000 rand. So these are one of the issues that we, that workers was feeling very aggrieved to. Mm-hmm. And we took it up to the company, and the company was uh, negotiating with us um, arrogantly, you see, and we even take the matter to the CCMA where they declare in front of the commissioner that they declare that they are prepared for war. So we was automatically forced into the strike. We have plead to the company to, can we not uh, apply to the CCMA for the section 152 process where we extend the, the time frame of the negotiations? And they say, no, they don't have time for that. We are prepared for war. You can go on strike, give them the certificate, let them strike. That was the words of them in the CCMA. And I'm curious, uh, I've read, I'm not sure, but perhaps you can correct me on this, that, that a lot of the farm workers at Robertson were making around about between 2,900 rand and 3,500 rand. How then did you settle on this figure of this demand of 8,500? Yeah, what, what we did is that um, what the workers, uh, workers have explained to us what the uh, living expenses are in a monthly basis. So at the end of the day, we come with this specific amount of 8,000 rand, which are not enough to sustain them in, for, in the monthly period. But we said, let, let's take this for, for the starting point and see how that can help to assist and improve your living conditions. So that is where we get uh, 8,500 workers. Was We was getting, informa- getting information about the living expenses of workers mm-hmm. monthly. Mm-hmm. And, and and we spoke earlier about the extreme difficulties in the sector to organise workers um, who who often work under very poor conditions um, and live in poor conditions and have been, I guess, split by 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 companies over these fourteen weeks that you that you um, and the workers were on strike. How did you ensure that you held out for that long, and how did you ensure that workers were united and committed to this goal? Yeah, yeah, there's a very interesting uh, question that is coming always up in interviews. See, what what workers, what the unity that was sustaining amongst workers was the desperation for things in their lives and in the working conditions. See, because you find, especially I was dealing, I want to deal with Robertson Minor experience. Hey, the, the black employees have to go daily through three clock systems to get to their workplaces. Now, it takes them 45 to one hour to get to the system, especially now in season time. And 
if they want to go to toilet, they have to clock out and clock in. Even if they want to smoke, they have, they got 20 minutes for the whole day to do to go to toilet, to smoking or whatever you want to do to get off the production line. And if you cross one second of that 20 minutes, you are getting a warning. But that are not applying for white employees in the company. Okay. So these things have have give workers the desperation to see that they that, that they will ensure that they will be changed in the company or in the agricultural sector when they go back to work or the strike is over. So that was that was the desperation of workers that was giving the unity amount. So so essentially what you're saying is that over with these workers having to deal with both racism and poor paying conditions over many years, they've just had completely had enough and were willing to go without pay for about three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we have trying we have uh, trying to convince workers to say, No man, let's see if we can settle on an alternative and workers was mandate to us was we cannot go into that company with the same terms and conditions because we want to see things because we have been exploited for many, many years and no one listened to us when we talk. See, our action was so done that we are desperate and we need things. Hmm. You, during this strike, it was resolved recently and workers, I understand, got a 400 rand increase. Uh, in a three-year deal that is inflate with with inflation-linked increases and an end-of-year bonus, and as I understand that there will be uh, no disciplinary hearings against any of the workers who took part, and what has happened at Robertson is being hailed as um, a turning point or, or, or potentially the start of radical change in in the farm worker sector in in um, the Western Cape. But from what I see, the the increases you got, they, they were much smaller than the 8,500 that you wanted. Why is this such an important agreement and why was this such an important strike? What impact will it have? Yeah, you see, this, the impact that the strike had was an impact across the agricultural sector. See, when workers of the Robson Winery was getting out and the strike was getting into its tent, intervention from the Vita, the body of the agricultural wine sector. And they was doing they was doing another um which was not supposed to be this year. They doing it all over three years. But they was forced to come and do the uh the inspections on the farm and some of the things have changed for farm workers during the strike. A lot of things have changed for farm workers during the strike. And for us, that is the importance of the strike was that the strike have, have had a huge impact on the agricultural sector. Um, I can just refer you back to the documentary of Buttergrip, which Kasau was participating in. So that film was coming out during the struggle, and that have pushed the government and other stakeholders to come and intervene into this thing because it was, um, it was affecting the whole wine industry. Mm. Um, Nick, I wanted to ask about uh, just the response from uh, from the winery. Uh, now, the managing director, when speaking in response to the settlement of the strike, 
pointed to a few things that 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 he believes the winery has been doing to improve working conditions, and he pointed to uh, medical facilities that have been provided, housing loans, and subsidies, and also pointed to a specific uh, farm called Constitution Road, where there's a trust where some farm workers um, have been sort of allocated as owners of that particular farm. So I wanted to just get your response on some of the things that the that this particular company is saying. No, we are doing X, Y, Z to make sure. Farm, farm, like, farm, farm workers' lives are more, are more manageable and are more humane. Uh, is your, what is your response to the sort of those sort of measures that, 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 that are said already in place? Yeah, I'm very good you asking that question because I see it coming up uh, every time in yeah. the press statements yeah. and uh, all these things. Uh, to deal with the housing subsidy, yeah. you know that there is 200 and 59 workers, as they have informed us in that company. Mm-hmm. Now, out of that uh, employees that are in the bargaining unit, only three workers have received that housing subsidy. So how can we, they say that that is benefiting the workers? But it's only benefiting three employees. And you know what they must do to get that housing subsidy? They must go and make a loan to the bank, and when the bank gives that loan, the company is giving them 850 rand to pay the loan back to the bank for a house. Otherwise, you don't qualify for that housing uh, subsidy. And the medical facility, uh, my personal view around that is the medical facility was bringing into the company to sustain the production active, active, the actively of the production so that workers cannot go out to the clinic in town and taking a lot of time and coming back. So that is a benefit for workers, but it's also a benefit for the company. So production is continuing mm. on a quicker basis than what it will be if workers have to go to the uh, public or, uh, hospital or something like that. And the constitutional farm is, you see this constitutional farm that they say that uh, uh, I've read it, but and I have speak with stakeholders, women especially. Those women... One of them was last year. She, 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 I think she resigned from the work or she was dismissed. And she come to our office, which we have here in Robertson. She bring us a contract. Now she's a shareholder, you see. Mm-hmm. Now she wanted the farm to pay out a, a share because she are not going to be a beneficiary now in this project. And that contract stated very clear that they can only receive the shares when they are retired or when a medical doctor is declaring you permanent unfit work. So she didn't receive a share. And that that is one of a few things. And I don't I don't think uh, that the constitutional farm is a benefit for those workers whose names have been there because I didn't see any benefit for them. Okay. Uh, the next one. Finally, I'm just curious. I mean, what's next? You've won this. I mean, as Greg mentioned, it's not quite the increase on the salaries that you wanted, but it is definitely a win in progress. Um, what's next? Um, what, what, what's next in terms of Sesau uh, and the plans? Do you see yourself with more actions such as the, the movie and that kind of action to mobilize sort of, I would say, people not involved in the sector uh, to, to sort of pay attention to pay attention or pay greater attention to working conditions? Do you see more direct action at, at farm farm owners? Is it lobbying government and, and legislative bodies? What what do you see as the way forward after this? 
Now, Kasao's position is very clear on the way forward. We are going to launch um, two campaigns next year. Yeah. And the one is uh, the, no, the No Fear campaign and uh, No Fear with access to farms. We want access to farms because farmers are putting electric fences around the farm. And you, if you want to visit the workers, and then the workers must inform you who's coming there. And when is the union... It, you don't get access. So we want to have free access to the farms. That will be our one campaign. And now, another campaign of us that we will be launched next year is the Loving Wage campaign. We will campaign for a Loving Wage. Okay. Then actually, one question I do want to ask is this about the film Bitter Graves that you mentioned, um, and how you know how people can see that. Is there sort of distribution channels where sort of regular everyday people can get a chance to see that? Yeah. Um, but they say that um, you can go online and uh, search for uh, the link but the grapes, and then you will can watch the trailer there. And if uh, people want to have the film, they can directly contact for Tom Heinemann. I think he's also on his Facebook page. He's also there, so they can speak to him to get the film. And otherwise, what we do is that we are film screening it um, across the rural areas where we work in. Okay, wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll make sure to get a hold of those links and, and sort of tweet them to our audience. Thank you so much. Um, if you're just tuning in, uh, that's Deneko Dube uh, from Sesau. That's the, the, the union involved with agricultural and allied workers and farm workers. Uh, Greg, one thing that didn't, we didn't get a chance to chat about on this was just that this is a relatively small union. And that's that quite interesting that they were able to, see, to achieve this. Um, and seeing even without a strike fund, there was no even sort of cushion for the farm workers. It was just, for me, that was just, that was massive. That really just mm. went home for me that, that a relatively small union was able to do this. Well, I think that's interesting in terms of the broader sector, broader story of what's happening with unions at the moment, yeah. where I think it's only, what, slightly over 20% of South African workers are unionized. Um, people don't necessarily believe that they need to join a unions and unions haven't necessarily done the best for a lot of people if you look at the farm working sector in particular. And then if you look at mine workers and things like that, it's been sort of a very long and slow struggle. And there's a big fight at the moment for for to try and unionize all those different workers. Obviously we've got um Zolin Zimavavi's new new trade union federation trying to come up and sort of take that space. Kasatu and its its affiliates are trying to reassert themselves in these spaces. But I think it's important that new new unions come up and fill these roles um, where our other past unions have failed. For example, if you look at um, the mine in, in, in the mining sector, what's happened with the rise of of Amku, which has you know been around for a bit longer and now it's grown into a huge union. But we need we need these workers worker organisations to come up and and lead the fight. For workers' rights, because I think we have to remember that, you know, South Africa's democracy is so young and the previous system, um, and the system that the country has inherited is fundamentally flawed in its relations to workers. Obviously, this, a lot of the laws now have changed and they can be quite progressive, but the, the, we need to start really focusing on a lot of these sectors that have been, I guess that have been ignored and where basically exploitation and abuse has mm. been normalized. Mm. I've been thinking a lot about just the, 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 the relationship between sort of unions and political parties in the run up to elections. And I was wondering whether there'd be a much bigger push to try and, to try and, 
to try and mobilize the union space as a, as a backing for political parties um, or, or, or whether the opposite would happen. Mm. And because of that, workers would be just more, more disinterested in sort of a massive COSATU type sort of affiliation because mm. of, the, of the push for election. I've been wondering whether it would lead to more fragmentation and less unionized. So, sort of so far, what I've seen yeah. with, with new unions that have come up, so... Um, with Amku, what they're talking, yeah. so, so they've got, I think it's the, the sort of founding document of this new trade union federation, yeah. which, um, if you're interested, I, I saw the other day that they said it's going to be launched, I think, late March okay. next year, but let's see if it's yeah. still coming yeah, it along. It still exists, but well, let's keep an eye on um, it. Yeah. I think, I think as well as Zimavavi is giving a briefing on it this week, so, so we'll see, but, um, the trend that I've seen at least, Amku has generally mostly been not affiliated with a particular party. Um, in, in the founding documents of, of the new trade union federation, they're very clear that they don't want to be linked to a political party. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean they won't be political the same as UMCO. They're, they're, they're very active, um, in their sort of political comments and their messaging and, and, and sort of ch- taking different positions. Um, but I think people look at Kasato and Kasato affiliated unions and see one of the key problems with that is the, the sort of, career stepping stones where you can where you can just sort of as a unionist you can get into key a and c positions um and that can potentially sacrifice your your role as a worker and obviously it makes it a little bit more difficult to take harder harder stances um when it comes to things like um, um demanding wages higher wages from the government i mean i think it's really something to watch especially in the run-up to the elections um Anyway, if everyone tuning in, we're just going to go into a short break and we'll continue. We'll be back talking about Gambia in just a bit. Whatever your term of endearment for your prize rod, four banger, four by, barge, beamer, beater, benz, big rig, bike, breezer, chori, chopper, clanker, crotch rocket, genka, ghetto cruiser, hog, hobdy, hypermiler, jalopy, junker, combi, lambo, land barge, pimp mobile, pocket rocket, puddle jumper, render rock scoot, shagging wagon, shitbox, sled, tank, warrant wagon, whoopee! There's only one place to visit if you're looking to buy a new vehicle, autotrader.co.za. With simple navigation and over 62,000 cars to choose from, it's a no-brainer. Visit autotrader.co.za today and find your next set of wheels. You're back with us on the second portion of the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. We're just going to pivot a bit and talk a bit what a bit about what's going on in America. Um, we're going to be speaking about what people are describing or calling Standing Rock, which is protests around the North Dakota Access Pipeline protests. On the line, we have Jay Brooks Specter to tell us a bit more about this. Uh, Brooks, can you hear us? Yes, good afternoon. I can hear you. Uh, that was quite a bit of lead-in music. I expected something a little different. Hey, we try to keep we try to keep things exciting. Got to keep you on your toes. Now, Brooks, I, I just I just love to start right from the beginning. What what is the Dakota Access Pipeline, and how has this turned into such a sort of major protest and occupation site? Yeah, well, that's I, that's where we should start. Really, uh, in North Dakota, there's been a boom in uh, oil shale, and there for the fracking of the oil reservoir, the oil reserves in that state. It's a, it, it, it's not a well-populated state, obviously, but uh, they discovered vast resources of this stuff. And with the oil prices being what they were, they were eminently exploitable resources. Uh, and a pipeline, of course, is the cheapest and most, well, not, not the cheapest in, 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 you know, dollar terms of uh, building it, but certainly the most efficient way of, moving the uh, petroleum from that area 
to places where there will be refineries and then ultimately to where there will be uh, uses for it uh, in, in uh, industrial terms or in motor vehicle terms. Um, and it's a long distance, and so a pipeline becomes much more practical than, say, an endless caravan of uh, uh, tanker trucks. Um, but the the difficulty was that the um, the pipeline crossed territory which was close to, but not in, a Sioux tribal land area in North Dakota. Uh, but it did cross, at least in its planned route, the Missouri River, which is one of the very large rivers in the United States and uh, sparsely populated, you go further downstream, of course, and it is not. And the protest took on several forms. Uh, originally, there were several ideas behind it. One from the, the perspective of the Sioux, uh, this was close to um, traditional tribal land. This was close to sacred land. Uh, this was uh, the Missouri River, that is, was the source of their drinking water. Um, and at the same time, the idea was that if the pipeline were to rupture, uh, it would pollute not only mm-hmm. land, that, uh, water that relates to them, but uh, for many tens of millions of people potentially downstream, which is not something to contemplate lightly. Now, the, the engineering idea was that uh, to do this most efficiently, they would drill down below the Missouri River and then come up on the other side. Now, originally, they'd gotten approval uh, from the the owners of the land, in this case, federal government and the, uh, or the individual element within the federal government that had control over it was the Army Corps of Engineers, which was responsible historically for all kinds of uh, bridges and dams and irrigation systems and, you know, who knows what else across the vast width and extent of the country. Um, but the, the problem is the pipeline builders could not build unless uh, the environment, environmental impact statements were in order and unless the Army Corps of Engineers gave their approval to use the easement, that is the land that was up against the Missouri River itself. Now, his, uh, some years ago, that those permissions were granted, and once this became clear, and as, as the pipeline itself was increasingly closer to closer completion, uh, the uproar began. This is close to Sioux land. This is going to potentially pollute or destroy uh, their drinking water, and uh, the, uh, by extension, uh, the use of the water for tens of millions of other people. Now, undoubtedly, there were people who saw this as a way of, of giving big oil a smack in the teeth as well, uh, but you, you really can't fault the question of the environmental potential damage uh, that was related to it. So what's happened? And as a result, the protests began to grow. More and more people from, from the Sioux, as well as other Native American uh, groups, began to show up. Uh, there were other protesters on ecological grounds, mm-hmm. environmental groups, and even a, several hundred people who were military veterans. And I'm so in- by the time... Quickly, w- sorry, Brooks, just to, just to jump Go in ahead. there. I'm interested in that. Um, I was just yeah, actually no, re- no. reading an article on these veterans. How, how and why did they get involved? It seemed to be like a rallying point for, for at least some veterans. Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one was not every veteran is, you know... Is, is somebody out of apocalypse now. Uh, 
<laughs> just to put, you know, they're normal people too, and uh, environmental consciousness is permeated rather deeply uh, throughout society. And there are a lot of people, uh, veterans, who may well have a have a grudge against government and a grudge against uh, big oil companies in a more general way, the way other people would. Uh, and they, uh, some of them may well have just seen this as a as a right, true, proper cause to rally with. By the time it, we got to uh, last week, there were some 20,000 people at this encampment out there in the middle of the open, uh, I, I want to say felt, but we don't use the word felt in the U.S., the open prairie, really, High Plains Prairie. Uh, 20,000 people in North Dakota makes it one of the larger cities in that state, in that state uh, which is really quite extraordinary. You can see a drone picture on, on some newscast mm. from the air of this of this thing, and it spread out in all directions. There were there were tents and yurts and caravans and uh, uh, hastily put together wooden buildings, uh, and so this this has become a a, a major encampment. Ultimately, the, yeah. the army. Go ahead. Uh, so it sounds like it, it sounds like just, I've been trying to figure out why, how this got so big. So it just sounds like a sort of a conflation or a nice meeting point of sort of e- ecological protest of of Native American and minority rights protest of anti-government of anti sort of big oil. Is is that it? Is that how we got to sort of this twenty thousand and this mass, um, shall I say, attention, even social media attention? Is it just this sort of conflation or meeting point of these individually contentious issues? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think the psychic forces all got in line, uh, and there were people all over the world. Social media is a, you know, we all know this, it's a pretty powerful tool. There were drumming circles around the world protesting this, uh, First Nation groups in various countries protesting it, um, and uh, the, the fact that it was, in a way, telegenic. Uh, there were all these people gathered in the middle of the snow and the blowing wind protesting something they thought was uh, was at best wrongheaded and at worst producing a whole range of traditional views that went back for centuries. Uh, all of that seems to have contributed. The Army Corps of Engineers finally got on the same side with the protesters and said, uh, well, we've looked at it again and we're not going to give approval to use the easement to put the pipeline uh, up to the shoreline of, of uh, uh, Missouri River and then underneath it and then up on the other side. And that, at least temporarily, has put the kibosh on the project, and they're going to have to look now for alternative ways uh, to cross the river uh, other than at this particular point and then other technological or technical solutions rather than than dig a huge trench under the the river. Personally, I'm not an engineer, but it just seems to me to be uh, asking for trouble to stick an oil pipeline under a constantly moving large body of water that occasionally moves it along its banks is subject to spring floods uh, and all the rest of this. I, I, the mind boggles at how that was going to work out. Um, the fly in this particular ointment, now they declared a victory at the, camp, at the encampment the other day, um, but the fly in the ointment, of course, is that the there's been a presidential election in the middle of all this, and uh, Donald Donald Trump uh, has expressed himself uh, supportive of the pipeline in general and the pipeline along this particular route in particular. Um, and that's what, 45, 46 days from now, uh, he becomes president. 
and he may he may well try to overrule the Army Corps of Engineers ruling on this. Surely, he, surely he might get sued, though, Brooks. Oh, it'll be in court for years. <laughs> you know, Sorry, why would he get sued? Could you explain lawyers. that? Why would he get sued? Um, because there will be people who will argue that the environmental uh, impact statement uh, was arbitrarily overruled, and those things are mm. important now. Mm. There will be people who argue that the the rights of uh, Native Americans were arbitrarily introduced, and there will be people who will show up with the original treaties uh, between the United States of America and the Sioux Nation. And these were treaties between sovereign nations uh, back in the 1860s and 70s. And there will be people who simply argue that on environmental grounds generally, this is a wrong-headed and, and facetious idea. There will even be people who argue that there are conflicts of interests uh, it turns out that the Trump organization up until recently had shares of stock in the company building the pipeline. So, uh, you know, this is a, you know, this is a uh, nirvana for lawyers, if nothing else. Uh, even if they reverse the reversal, uh, it's going to be a while before they, uh, they actually get the bulldozers back in line to get, to get started on this last five or 10% of the pipeline. I mean, Brooks, this is my final question before we let you go. We've seen some some sort of protests sure. since the election, uh, some anti-Donald Trump protests, um, some around injustice and police killings and systemic racism. So we've seen some small sort of sort of protests flare up around the country. Do you think this win around the, the access pipeline, does that give momentum to what, to what is a sort of discontent around the country or is this or is the notion that there's mass discontent around the country and mass protests is that already a bit a bit misguided is it um, are people mostly just gone back to the realities after the election interesting question really is i mean no one really knows uh but the very fact that this decision uh the reversal decision comes just a couple of weeks before the inauguration is certainly going to encourage people mm. Uh, at the inauguration itself, for example, or perhaps in other venues, uh, the only downside to it all, of course, it's middle of winter, and uh, it, it's you know it takes real hardy stuff to want to keep an encampment going in the middle of what looks like Siberia, uh, in, you know, with the snow and the temperatures plunging to uh, as much as fifteen, twenty degrees below zero Fahrenheit, not not Celsius, um, and. But it's it's bound to give some impetus to the idea that protest isn't dead, that there are still points of contestation with what the Trump administration may bring to it. And even when the various people who are appointed, say, to the Department of the Interior, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, and one or two other major government offices which have a stake in this question, uh, once those hearings begin, it's likely that this will carry on for a long time to come just over the question of reversing the reversal. Okay. It's something we'll definitely continue to watch, and I'm sure we'll keep interviewing you as we watch sort of what unfolds um, and, you know, going forward. Brooke Spector, yeah, thanks so much for chatting. It's been extraordinary to watch how this came out. Okay, take care. We'll talk to you later. Okay, wonderful. I was just going to the last portion. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get a hold of Simon Allison. I assume he's probably in a cave somewhere in West Africa hunting the next big story, so we, we won't fault him too much. Now, Greg, you asked me a bit about this before the show, and I, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, we have a president, like I mentioned, Yahya Jammeh, who's been in power since 1994. 
Mm. Right? That's 22 years. I mean, you've seen widespread intimidation during his whole sort of tenure. Lots of violence against opposition, political intimidation. Um, openly saying on air that he will bury his opposition nine feet deep, not six, nine feet deep, and that Western powers can't say anything about it. Has been jailing protesters, the whole, not protesters, sorry, but opposition party leaders. And journalists. And journalists in the whole run up to the election. So as early as March or April, you have people in jail. Um, so you have, you know, tens of people, some people beaten to death in jail. So you have every, Indication of things that we've seen in many places, unfortunately, in places like the DRC, in places like mm. uh, that, 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 that when someone's in power, they're just not going to let go. And then he lost. Well, even, even I think another thing to mention is in the couple of days or, or, or during voting around the election time, I think if I'm, if I'm uh, not mistaken, there was a social media uh, ban in the, yeah. in, the, in the country. And so all indications were that his rule would just continue. Absolutely. And then we just saw sort of magnificent, I don't know, I don't have the vocabulary. I mean, you're the writer, but just such a wonderful display of, of just what happens when people are fed up. You have an, you had a, an election that everyone is describing as free and fair. And I don't mean EU observers or AU observers. I'm talking everyday people in Gambia that people are chatting to on both sides saying this was a fair election and that, and that votes were counted as they should have been and that everything was processed how it should have been and that the president just lost. I mean, it's incredible. One thing Simon did say is that there was just such overwhelming support against the the incumbent, and such sort of a tidal wave of of support for the opposition leader uh, Adamo Barrow, um, that even if they did try to rig the elections, they wouldn't have been able to. I mean, I mean, it's 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 been it's been really. There's a really great energy coming out of Gambia right now. We've seen some political prisoners already being freed, albeit on bail, while the you know the process goes on judicially, and and sort of a lot of. A lot of judges already pushing to say, let's, let's get these people out of the system. And there was this remarkable scene where some protest leaders and some opposition leaders were let out and everybody stood up in the courtroom and sang, and sang the national anthem, which feels sort of kumbaya-ish and, and may seem a bit cheesy. But you, when you consider that these people have not been able to post on Facebook their support, have not been able to, to campaign against the president, now suddenly you can hold hands in court with the opposition party leaders and, and just sing. The, the national anthem in this sense of, of sort of unity of, of, of a sort of free Gambia. That's, that's a, that's a really, really powerful energy. And I'm really excited to see where this momentum takes the country. I think, I think with the, with the president conceding defeat, that yeah. was obviously a hugely positive step. Yeah. But now I think it's important that we have to watch what, um, what the new president, uh, Barrow will do. He said he's going to institute judicial reforms, electoral reforms. Um, I think he's committed to, to the presidency only being like being limited to two terms. He's also talking about I think boosting the boosting the economy through agriculture and manufacturing um, and the energy sector, but obviously all of that will take a lot of work. And coming in inheriting a government like the one he's inheriting, I think his first his first few years will probably just be trying to clean things up. But we'll have to watch it very cl- very closely to see if he does. I mean, absolutely. I mean, this this is always the double edged sword of of hope and momentum. And we saw, for example, with the Obama campaign, um, is when you have this kind of support and hope and especially a lot of young people excited and when things don't happen as quickly as they should because it's pretty hard to turn around a whole country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do do people turn against you? Do people feel like they were they were they were sort of 
led astray or, or, or did you overpromise? So it's, it's going to be really interesting to see the balance between main, maintaining the momentum and just being practical and this stuff takes time. Uh, in a country where we have so many people, I mean, a large percentage of the, of the migrants who are, who are dying crossing the oceans going into Europe are Gambians, which is crazy when you think of just how small Gambia is. Gambia's got, you know, about a tenth of the size of Nigeria and you've got almost equal numbers of Nigerians and Gambians crossing the ocean. So you've got a lot of people, a lot of young people in Gambia who feel like they have nothing to live for. So I, I'm, I, at least nothing, nothing to live for in their country. And that it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a better prospect to cross an ocean in a little boat than to, to, you know, make a plan in Gambia. So that's, those are the kind of, you know, that's the kind of, um, calculations that regular Gambians are making. And we spoke to Human Rights Watch a few weeks ago and they, and that's what they described, just a place where, where there's a lot of hopelessness for a lot of especially young people. So I'm curious where the hope and the, and the optimism takes us. But I mean, for now, I'm just taking a moment to just be really excited and, and just be damn proud of a, of a, of a country that said enough is enough. So there is a good news story in 2016. That's what I'm saying, man. It only took an hour to get to it, but that's what I'm saying. Something else we'll chat to Simon when we next speak to is Angolan President Jose Dos Santos, who's also been in power for over 20 years, saying that he will step down before the next election. I think he said that before, though, so we'll see. <laughs> and his daughter is, the, is, I think, the richest person in the country, and I, and I suspect he'll try and get is, her to run in, in his I state. might be completely wrong on this, but is she not the richest woman in Africa? I th- yes, she's one of the richest black women in the world. I think she's the richest woman in Africa. So I think he may try a sort of bait, like, I'm not sure if bait and switch is even the right terminology. I think it's just a fuck you if you just step down and put your sort of daughter in charge. But anyway. That's our good news story. Um, thank you for bearing with us for 50 minutes as we got there. Thank you so much for listening. Please share, and share the podcast far and wide as per usual. A big thank you to Greg Nicholson and everybody we chatted to. Also, um, a big thank you to Dennis Webster over at Seri, uh, who did some excellent, excellent writing for having a post uh, about the Robertson's Winery story. And just thank you for helping us put the segment together. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. CliffCentral.com